Praise the Lord. How many wish they were still a kid? Yeah, I just really want to acknowledge as a church those that are going through it. One of the knocks on um, sort of modern evangelicalism is sort of a plastic veneer. We're always happy. Everything's always good. And we are happy in Jesus, amen? But we... uh, we, uh, it was funny going out to Solvang last night. We went to see that living nativity, and then they were sold out. So we got to hang out in a sweet Danish village. It was awesome. Um, but on the way to Solvang, we passed this ginormous ostrich farm. Everyone know what I'm talking about? I just felt like I was goofing around in the car with my wife, but I'm like, man, I am not, we're not going to be an ostrich church. We're not going to stick our head in the sand when the nations are raging when fire is blazing and when our own people are hurting. And so it's not like every Sunday is going to be super heavy, but as your pastor, I just want to acknowledge those that are going through it right now, that we, we're going to lift up intercession for those affected by the fire just a few miles to the south of us. We acknowledge those that are... Um, we just acknowledge it. We enter into the heart of God that breaks for his world. And you and I participate in that healing project of the kingdom as his people. He actually extends his healing presence through people, through the church. And so just hit that shoulder of the person next to you, or if you love them a lot, you can maybe hold their hand. Unless you're a germ freak, I am, it's okay. I would definitely be a shoulder grabber. But right now, we just Lord, we, we just say in solidarity, we, we, uh, we acknowledge the suffering and the sorrow that's taking place all around us. And we, we enter into that and we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Let the, let the kingdom of heaven come on the earth as it is in heaven. And we just make space, Lord, with our neighbors to the south, those that are being displaced, those whose homes are being ravished by these fires. We ask protection upon every service man and woman over the firefighters and those working tirelessly. God, uh, medevacs, medical teams, everyone, Lord. We at Cornerstone Church, we, we just say, Lord Jesus, move in power. Turn thousands, turn millions to you in the wake of disaster, we pray. We bind turning to any substance. We bind towards blame. We bind any other option. We ask that there would be a move of revival fire across our land. Father, we we cry out for those who have no voice. We right now, in this simple moment, we stand in agreement with those bruised and battered down. Father, and... Just shine your healing light, your healing presence, Father, through your Son and then through your Son's body, the church of Jesus. We love you and we acknowledge you, Jesus, as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief. But grief will not have the final word. And so, Lord, we thank you for your presence being manifested now where it is most needed in our nation and in the nations of the earth, Lord. Come. Make every wrong thing right. Overthrow. Uproot and tear down every kingdom that is not of you, Jesus. And establish your rule and your reign. We acknowledge you as King and Lord, Master, in Jesus' name. And we said amen and amen. Hey, you received, I did, I brought one up here with me. You received this. um, Pastor Chad Jordan, we met this week and had a phenomenal idea. Um, Yes, we give to Angel Tree, and I 
you give to World Vision and Compassion Child. And, but how many know it's okay to take care of your immediate church family too? So if you or someone you know is on hard times and do not be ashamed to fill this out. After the service, we're gonna have some buckets or baskets, whatever we're gonna have. If you wanna contribute to this above and beyond your tithe and your offerings, every dime will go to gift cards to help provide for a present for every kiddo that is represented by Cornerstone Church. Does this make sense? Just nod your head at me. And so if you wanna participate, my wife and I are gonna be contributing to this. Um, um, Sorry, it's emotional this morning. But um, if in any other way you need help or resources or anything, just tell us. You don't have to go through this season or any season alone. Okay? No one has to suffer in silence. You're safe here. It's okay. It's okay to be. It's okay. It's okay. So, uh, Come find one of us, one of the pastors or ushers or prayer team, and we'll, we'll pray with you. And, but we won't just pray with you. We'll also we'll help you in any other way we can. And we're not the answer. We don't have infinite amounts of dollars, but we do have some. And so we want to participate. All in favor, say amen. amen. Jesus. Well, doggone it, it's 1050. I have such a good message today. It's just the Bible, it's the whole word, but I know for a fact there's no way I can get it all done. <sighs> Doggone it. So I'll start and I'll just pick up where we leave off <laughs> to next week. Is that okay? So the ultimate question uh, we're gonna look at, don't show the clip yet, I need to, is this thing working? Oh boy, that's not the message. It's called, uh, oh, can you go to my title screen for me? I had it all queued up, I thought. So. We're going to look over the next couple weeks. Um, this seems like a wild topic and title, but I'm telling you, it is one of the most biblically sound ideas there is. It's as old as the first page of the Bible, but it's this idea that God has always been about partnering with humanity to rule the world <laughs> in a life-giving way. And so as we're going through the, the gospel narrative of Matthew through the birth narrative of Jesus. Specifically, we're gonna zone in on what the Magi have to teach us about them traveling over many, many miles to crown Jesus the Messiah as King of the Jews and what the implications of the story are. The ultimate question is who is going to rule the world? And this is just a little clip to make you smile, I guess. If anyone remembers it, shout amen. <laughs> What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. <laughs> the Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a All right, thank you. That's good. So, I just, I, I, anyone know that show or remember it a little? But here's Brain, this genius freak zoid mutilated mouse. But he's tapped into a primal longing within the, embedded and coded in the DNA of every human on the planet of the earth, on planet earth, as if there's humans on any other planet, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Intrinsically in us, because every one of us, whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, tall, white, black, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. Every, one, every human, say every human is made in the very image of God. And because of that, and because God is ruler, he has designed us like brain to take over the world. <sighs> Let's just close in prayer. You can just go think about that and read your Bible. Um, so, but the ultimate question is, is not will someone rule the world? Read this with me. The question is, who is going to rule the world? And as Christians, as those who claim allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we know Jesus is going to rule the world. And if you're good in your, your Bible and your theology, we're not just waiting for him to rule the world. He currently reigns at the right hand of his Papa with all authority in heaven and on earth already in his hands. 
It is bad theology. Yes, the kingdom is now and not yet, but we're not waiting for Jesus to rule. He is currently ruling. He is Lord of the earth. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, it's contested space. Yes, it's now and not yet. Yes, there is all sorts of havoc and devastation, and there is a primal longing in every believer's heart for the Son of God to come again for his second advent and to finally and definitively overthrow Satan, hell, and all of his demons and all those who do wrong. But I'm telling you, Jesus is currently the ruler. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. It seems archaic who's going to rule the world, but it is as old as the first page of the Bible. I'm going to skip over a lot of this, and we might be able to make up some time. Just for reference, in in, in Matthew chapter 1, let us make humankind in our image and our likeness so that they may what? Rule. Now, the word um, image here is the, in the Hebrew, salim, and it can be translated idol or statue. It's sort of weird, right? We touched on this a few, a few weeks ago, but an idol represents an invisible being. Does that make sense? That's why there's idols. What's unique to Christianity and our faith that, you know, spills out from and grows from Judaism is that God said don't make an idol after his image because he already made image bearers, it's you and I. And the concept here is as ancient as page one is that the earth is God's temple and you and I are placed everywhere. It says in Acts 17, he sprinkles humanity where he wants them during the times he wants them so that men might cry out to him. And so it's this primal uh, promise, as ancient as page one, is that God is looking for icons, image bearers, to rule with him. We are God's statues, if you will, except for we're alive. Hallelujah. Turn to the person next to you and say, quit acting like a statue. <laughs> so God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created him and them. And essentially, it's this God and Adam and Eve, he creates a king and a queen. He creates these icons, these image bearers, these statues to be in communion with him and to extend his rule and dominion in all the earth. How many know that there is a whole untapped, untamed world outside of Eden that God wanted to them to till the ground and make something of the raw material and to create culture and language and food. And everyone said, amen. They were vegetarians for at least the first couple pages. So to all you vegans, hallelujah. I'm no longer a vegan. I got saved. So (laughs) just kidding. (sighs) But this idea of rule is where we get the idea of dominion. So the image bearers, you and I, are placed on the earth to rule with God like brain. What are we going to do today? All of us are trying to rule something. For my wife, it's the kitchen. Come on, somebody. As a mom of three, five and under, everything else is messy, but her kitchen is clean, man. It's her dominion. It's her sphere. So get out of my kitchen, Chad, with you and your mess. But all of us have this oikos, this sphere where we're we're jockeying for position. We're calling the shots. We're ruling as we see fit. You see, like brain, all of us are made with this innate desire to be a king and a queen, to rule. Now, we know the problem is when we rule apart from God, not aligned with and under God. Thus, Genesis 3 on this exciting journey. What have humans done with the rule, with their rule? They're responsible for art, medicine, science, education, beautiful art, coffee. Come on, somebody. Believer in Jesus or not, humans have capacity to create life-giving systems and structures. They don't always do that. What else is humanity responsible for? 27 million slaves blatant racism, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, genocide, Rwanda, ISIS, etc., pornography. 
So in the same breath, we're so incredibly pregnant with possibility to rule and to make something of the world that is life-giving, but all too often, from Genesis 3 on, we build systems and structures around our own desire to have authority, power, and dominion at the expense of anyone and everything else. But God knew what he was doing. He wanted to rule with us. So Adam and Eve sinned and handed over authority to the prince of darkness, the Satan, the accuser. This makes total sense why we celebrate the season of Advent. Because God gave humanity the right and authority to rule. And so God has to come as a human to reestablish God's creation mandate to the earth. God comes wrapped in skin and bone to undo, overthrow, and usher in brand new possibilities in and through Jesus. Advent, the arrival, someone say the arrival of King Jesus on the scene. And King Jesus, unlike Adam and unlike Eve and unlike Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and on and on it goes, and King David and Solomon and then the divided kingdom and 600 years between Babylon exiling Judah to Jesus rolling up, being planted by the spirit to grow in the womb of a virgin. And for 600 plus years, who is going to rule the world? The Jewish people are aching and longing. And we roll into our story in Matthew 2. This is the tension, the ache, the longing for the arrival of the one true king. And this is why Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Everyone say the second Adam. You can go read that yourself in in Romans chapter five. But it's this idea of God restoring, renewing, remaking, reshaping the very human vocation to rule alongside of God a present and real possibility only in and through Jesus. Our story today will shed some, some, some real beautiful light on all of this. I'm not going to go into all this review, but I want to, but I'm not going to. Just go to our podcast um, or our website. I'm just going to skip it. But we know so far in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-hoped-for King of kings and Lord of lords, the seed of Abraham reigning on the throne of his father David. On and on it goes. You can go and check that out and skip all of this. But it's a good, it was a good message last week. So you can go check it out and skip it. So let's dive right into Matthew chapter 2. After Matthew's already made the argument, cue the 35-minute message last week. That he's the king. He has the credentials of a king. He's born in the right sea, the right time, the right family, through Joseph's adoption of him as a legal son. And here I am preaching the whole sermon again. So I'm done. Who is going to rule the world? Our story gets right at that. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men, astronomers, astrologers, everyone has a theory on who they are and where they're from, They came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born, read it with me, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they're tapping into this ancient promise that God specifically made with the Jewish people. Again, back to Matthew 1, that a seed from Abraham will now be a seed of his great-grandson Judah, and then his son David, and then through him, that king is going to rule the world. Are you tracking with me? So this is a big-time question. Where is the king of the Jews? Now, a brief word about Herod, because what was before Herod's name in our passage? Say it louder. King. Not only king, but he's called Herod the Great, right? Who is Herod? 
He's sort of a great archetype or a caricature of every human king that tries to be a big shot, but inside their whole life is lived covering up for their own inadequacy and insufficiency. Herod is a paranoid, killing his own sons at the threat of them taking over his throne. Ten wives, killing his wives when he thinks they're, you know, starting a coup without him. He changed the priesthood and put people of his own choosing instead of the legitimate priests in the temple. Essentially killing every single threat for 40 years of his rule and his reign. He is Rome's puppet king. He, uh, some historians think he was under five feet tall, he is the epitome of small man syndrome. No hate for all you short people out there. But you know what I mean. Those who have a chip on their shoulder trying to make a name for themselves. I mean, who called him Herod the Great anyway? Probably himself. So here are these magi coming to the king of the Jews, the wannabe king. Everyone say wannabe king. And let me just give you a tip. You don't Tell the paranoid, murderous, vindictive, violent, little man syndrome, Herod, that you've come to find a king of the Jews. Coming to find a king for a throne that you claim to sit on, Herod. How many know this is getting, this story is going to unfold in not so awesome ways? And it's this story that really captures every human story to rule apart from God. So that's Herod. I don't want to spend more on him. I want to get to Jesus. When King Herod heard this, he was, say it with me, disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, this word disturbed is really an understatement of the year or the centuries. It's greatly distressed, stirred up and shaken, afflicted. Why? was Herod disturbed at the announcement of another king. He was a threat to his throne. And how many know that God has no problem threatening any throne or any person on that throne? The problem with having an illegitimate place on a throne is that, A, you probably had to use illegitimate means to get your position like violence and hatred and racism and oppression and murder and war. Think of all the kingdoms of all the ages. And you have to sustain your rule through the same means you rose to get to that place of rulership. So it's sustained by murder and oppression and violence and hatred. Are you tracking with me? They're disturbed because Herod, first of all, was not a legitimate descendant of Jacob. Way back there in the, in the Bible. In Genesis, he's not a child of the promised Jacob. He is a son of Esau. He's an Edomite. And what do we know about Esau? We know that God blessed the line of Jacob and said through him the king is coming. And so Herod not only has his violence and his ten wives and he's a wannabe king and he's a murderer and he's hatred, he's an oppressor, he's got blood against him. Herod had no right to rule on the throne that he claimed and that Rome acknowledged he had. And here he is, all Jerusalem with him disturbed. Because why? Because at this point of Jesus' birth, Herod dies a year or so later. So they've had 40 years to watch this dude and what he does with those who are potential threats. Anyone been around a toxic person? How many know toxicity leaks? All of Jerusalem. Ugh, what's he going to do? So he asked the priests, where is this king coming from? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, the city of the king, King David. But this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers, there it is again, of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. There's this longing, this ache for a ruler who won't let us down. You ever notice that every four years? I don't want to stay here very long because I get sick just thinking about it. It doesn't matter who it is. What is every campaign built upon? Promises. 
that tap into the primal longings of the human heart. Vote for me and I will. Whatever you want, I'll make it happen. But everyone longs, no matter where you're from, for a ruler who will not be more concerned with their position of authority and power at the expense of you. Caring for your needs, caring for a humanity that makes space for everyone to flourish and to thrive. There's this ancient longing, as old as the prophets, for a ruler that will emerge who will care as much for the people he rules as his own position of authority and power. An unprecedented ruler and shepherd. The cry for someone like David. What was David called in Acts chapter 13? A man after God's own heart. A king like David who would not only have a heart after God's heart, but a heart after God's people. Right in your margin or your smartphone, Ezekiel 34. It's a brilliant passage that describes at length, no time here, this great ruler and shepherd of Israel, Jesus, that was prophesied to come. So, he goes on. How would this king that clearly Herod was not going to be different. And why was the king that the prophets saw by the Spirit going to differentiate his rule and authority from every other king and ruler and authority? We have to go to Isaiah. Read this passage with me in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So, So the prophet helps us. Finally, a king who uses authority for peace and not his own promotion. Do you understand? This is the line of demarcation between the rulership and government and kingdom that is established on Jesus' shoulders than every other kingdom. Peace is always a, like, on the 50th bullet point of a ruler's hope. Number one is how to get my title. Number two is how to keep my title. Number three is how to gather people around me to help do my bidding so that my rule continues. Are you tracking? But Jesus and the prophecy of Isaiah 9 is that he will be a prince of peace. This alone, even as this is all we had to describe prophetically of the rule and reign of Jesus, already Herod and Jesus are worlds apart. One using violence, hatred, murder, and oppression to gain and keep his rulership, and one establishing peace by being peace himself. Unlike every other ruler and throne, this son's kingdom will be both established and upheld with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. And who's going to accomplish it? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish that. Even if a new king or an heir to a throne receives the title without bloodshed or being established, it is usually upheld through violence, power grabbing, greed, and bloodshed. But this hoped for king would both establish and uphold, start and sustain through perfect justice and righteousness. And we all said amen. Not for a second on the way to his throne would he betray the very inner logic and ethic of God himself, which is righteousness and justice. On the way to his throne and now reigning on his throne, would he ever enter into one second of injustice or oppression or belittling the marginalized or the oppressed or those who have no voice? Not for a second would the one who reigns on David's throne betray the nature of God on the way to and on the way through for all eternity. Perfect justice and righteousness. 
And the Magi are saying, we've come to find that king, because Herod, you're not that king, nor is any other king, president, prime minister, ruler, only Jesus can say both my establishment and my upholding perfectly reflect the nature, character, and conduct of God himself. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He will reign means peace, prosperity, provision, and protection. For who? Those who have what it takes to get to his throne? Those who have enough in the bank account or the education? No. If his ministry indicates the kind of rulership and the kind of government he would extend for all eternity, that means it's good news, peace, prosperity, provision, protection for the least, the marginalized, those at risk, the downtrodden, the broken and the bound, the blind, the crippled, and the dead. Who is this kingdom and this rulership for? People like you and me and those all around us. It goes on. Wind down here, this thing, there we go. Then Herod called the Magi. See, what's interesting is that even though the priesthood and the scribes, those, those people that Herod illegally placed to help do his own bidding, they knew where to find the answer in the Bible, but they weren't willing to make the five-mile journey to go to this king. Does anyone know anyone like that? They know the right answer, but man, they, their life is not compelling. They're grumpy. They're rude. They're, anyone know people that might be able to point you to the answer, but they do not embody the answer through a lifestyle of pursuing Jesus no matter the cost? That's those who gave Herod the right answer. They could find the chapter and verse, Micah 5, but they're not willing to make the journey. When knowledge of the Bible and a passion for truth in and of itself detached from the pursuit of the one who is truth, you have a serious problem. And he goes on. He sent them. You guys go and do the careful searching for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Reality check. If you aren't willing to get off your own throne in pursuit of the one who claims to rule the world, then you are not interested in true biblical worship. You may be in theory or in, I'll sing the song, I'll give the offering, but how many know we serve a God who sees directly in and through our hearts? What would it require Herod to do to make the journey with these wise men, these magi? He'd have to get off his own throne first. Come on, somebody, help me preach. Worship is the willful dethroning of yourself, the denying of self-rule, and the giving of wholehearted allegiance to another. You go find the boy so that I can come and worship. How many know Herod was galaxies away from true biblical worship? The dethroning of yourself, the denial of your own self-rule apart from God, and the wholehearted giving of your allegiance, your very breath, your everything to another. Next week, we're going to look at the links that Herod went, the killing of the babies in Bethlehem. We're not going to go today. In other words, how many know that most of the problems, I would argue theologically, maybe all of them in the world, problems of injustice, prejudice, race, et cetera, racism, marginalization, prostitution, et cetera, is the misplacement of worship. Because humans aren't willing to get off the throne, and therefore they extend to the rule of their own kingdom, which usually means destruction for those around them. And we'll just see it next week when Herod refuses to go himself and worship. What happens? It costs a bunch of babies their life. We're going to go there next week. So look at this. I love this. After they heard the king, lowercase k, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Have you ever wondered in this Christmas story, why did the star not just immediately lead them to the place of Jesus' birth? First of all, the star leads them where? To Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem. Almost as if God's saying, I want you to put Jerusalem on notice and every puppet king and all the, the false duplicity and impurity of the priesthood. Go announce to them first that one is born who is the rightful heir to the throne, the king of kings. And then the star reappears. There's so many, I'm not even going to preach on it because there's like 20 opinions. Is it a supernova? Is it 7 BC? I read everything. I read a lot. Whatever it was, the star reappears after they followed what they knew to follow until they knew more, they did better. Isn't that cool? They go to Jerusalem. I've been there. I went there a couple weeks ago. Just five miles to the south over is Bethlehem. How many know when you walk in the revelation that you have, God will pour out more so that you know where to go next? (laughs) Revelation begets revelation when what moves you in revelation is obedience to the one who's revealing himself to you. So after Jerusalem, the star lights up their path again, and they go to the place of the child's birth. And we're going to, this is getting good. When they saw the star, they were what? Say it with me, nice and loud. I made it bold for you. Overjoyed. If your idea of worship does not lead to this place of deep satisfaction and overjoyment, we need to go back to the drawing board and rethink what worship is all about. Come on, somebody. When worship is rightly placed, we position ourselves under the one who himself is the fullness of joy. When they saw the house and the child with his mama Mary, they bowed down and they what? They worshiped him. Isn't it awesome in this Advent season? Much debate is who, you know, trying to find out who these magi were, were they... Daniel chapter two, were they part of the Magi during Daniel's time and the king of Persia and Babylon? You know, were they royalty? Were they not? Again, I read a bunch. One thing we do know, they were truly wise because their pursuit ended in worship of the rightful king. If someone wants to be the wise person in your life, but they're not willing, to, you don't see them bow the knee and worship the one who alone is worthy, they are not wise from heaven's perspective. Many know theories and ideas and they're passionate about little nuances of the gospel or truth, but if you do not see in their life a willingness to bow no matter who's around or the cost and acknowledge the one who alone is worthy, they're not wise in God's eyes. And chances are they're probably just furthering and sustaining their own rule and kingdom. Isn't it amazing that these stargazers, these astrologers, astronomers, whatever commentary you read, that God used the place of their interest to draw them to themselves? Come on, somebody. He didn't, you know, this is good news. As you're with family members and people that don't know Jesus and haven't bowed the knee before his throne, that God can use anything, someone say anything, and anyone to draw humanity to himself in worship. To the stargazers, he uses a star. Isn't that amazing? He meets us at our point of need. That should give you hope for your lost son or your daughter or your loved one or your coworker or colleague or the person across the street. God can use anyone or anything to light a path to his saving presence. I love it, and we're in with this. They opened their treasures. They presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I'm gonna save all of part two for next week. Let's wrap this up. What are some of the implications we can learn about worship from the story of the Magi? Are you ready? Get your pencil, your notepad, or your smartphone. Or What are some implications? We're going to cut this right in half. I have notes for this part. Just stop. i got to find them. I was going to save it. What are some lessons we can learn about worship that moves the heart of the king from the, from the Magi? First of all, we learn from the Magi 
true wise men. That to worship God in a God-honoring way is to be sensitive to the times and seasons in which we live. They saw the star. They jumped at it. They didn't wait. They didn't second guess. They didn't theorize. Was that the one? True biblical worship will always move you toward God while discerning the times and the seasons. And I would argue that as believers in this time of history, being sensitive to the time and season in which we live in salvation history, the unfolding of God's purposes for his world, you and I, as true worshipers of God, must become alert and sensitive to the times in which we live. And we all said amen. What else do we learn from the Magi? I made slides for this and I deleted them, so I'm sorry. Just write them down. We learn that true worship means an eagerness and a willingness to go no matter how far the trip to find the one who is revealing self to us. So much damage has been done in the name of we don't want works righteousness. It all comes to us by grace. And I want you to know I believe everything does come to us by grace. Shake your head at me. But there is an entire dynamic of the kingdom that gets pitted as the bad man called seeking and pursuit and desperate hunger and longing and humility that are not opposed to grace. These wise men, when they saw the star, true biblical worship, they didn't sit and go, man, I sure hope the star gets closer. They went after the star with all that they had, an eagerness and a willingness. And you know what might just be the linchpin, the key to awakening in our church and the church is when we tap into the reality that grace is not opposed to our effort and our zeal and our fervor and passion. We don't go after God to earn anything from God. We go after God because he is God. And he alone is worthy. He's worth the trip. He's worth the treasure in our chest. He's worth the time and the effort. I've been to the Holy Land. Oh, my goodness. He's worth the mountainous climbs. And he's worth the deepest, hardest valleys and riverbeds. He is worthy of any pursuit if it means we get him at the end. Any pursuit. We learn this from true biblical worship, an eagerness and a willingness to be sensitive to the time. Where are you at in your journey with Jesus? Are you in a dry spell? Are you in a dry season? That is not the final word over your life. Pursue him. Seek him. Yeah. What else about worship? They never, it was focus. They never allowed their eyes, natural or spiritual, to detour them from the object of their worship. We want to see the king. They didn't let Herod distract them. They didn't let any person, the priests and the chief priests and the temple system, no one was going to get in the way of the object of their pursuit until they saw the king with their own eyes. Many of us were the thorny believers in Matthew 13. The cares of this life and the, the, the lure of wealth and riches, it's in your Bible, I'm not making it up, it chokes the kingdom life out of us. A lack of focus, duplicity in our eyes and our pursuits. And I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus is calling us to wholehearted affection and devotion and worship because he alone is worthy. They model a focus, a tenacity to not be detoured to the right or the left. They went all the way. What else do they teach us? Worship is not final or complete until you are bowed before the one who is worthy. If worship doesn't change you on the inside, you on the throne or Jesus on the throne, we may have done lip service, but we haven't done heart service, which is what moves the king. Bowing, humility. I'm not king, but you are. I want you to rule and reign, not me. Worship will always, 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 if it's true worship, it will always address the true and deep places of our hearts. Now, here's the thing. That deep place can be buried under a big old pile of religious deeds and services. Can I get a witness? Where the place of allegiance and surrender never gets scratched, but we'll do the church thing. But I'm telling you, don't settle until you're on your face before him. It's all yours, God. And then ultimately, two things. The fruit of biblical worship, as we just looked at, is joy. 
And I love this. Last lesson about worship, and we're done. You never leave the same after a true encounter of worship. Having been warned, I love that point. He, they returned by another what? If you walk in here and worship and leave the same, I'm not saying that it ain't a journey when you leave this place. Shake your head at me. There's a journey. There's barriers, obstacles, adversities, difficulties. Your son may still drive you crazy. That sickness may still be in your body. That sin between you and a neighbor may still be there, but you don't have to leave going on the same route. If you worship and you ends in bowing before him, you acknowledge that he alone is king of your heart and the world. You, by his grace, can walk on a different route out of here. Worship always transforms our return journey. It creates a new way forward. Another way. That if we're willing to go with Jesus, we can make progress. Sensitive to the times and season. Eagerness to go, no matter the cost, to find the one who alone is worthy. A tenacity and a focus to not be distracted by disbelief or uh, being disenfranchised. You hoped and longing and ache. Staying focused. Don't let allowing anything to grow up to steal that pursuit, that affection for Jesus that he alone is worthy of. To not stop until you're on your face, literally and obviously spiritually, bowed before the king. You are king. Just say that with me. Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You are worthy no matter the journey, no matter the cost. And ultimately, you and I get to be recipients of what they experienced, being overjoyed. Even in darkness, death is not the final word. Jesus is the final word. How do you need to respond today? Grab your smartphone. Grab your pen or your pencil. Don't look at me. Ask Jesus how you need to respond. Again, I had 40 more minutes about ruling with God. We'll hit that next week, but we had to stop right here because he gave me all of that, and now I actually got to use it. Worship that moves the heart of God. Worship that changes the worshiper from the inside out. Worship that calls us to a journey of pursuing. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, what does it mean for me to be a worshiper, a wise man or woman this week in my life, at my workplace, in my family, in my relationships? How can I worship the one who alone is worthy of it? Write it down. Make a covenant with the Lord your iPad, your iPhone, a smart, whatever you got. How can you be a worship? How can we worship the Lord well this week? Maybe it's your finances. These guys brought treasure with them. Maybe you're so frayed financially to sow into the kingdom. I don't know. I'm not putting it in you or on you. But man, worship moves us and it touches the core of who we are and then it touches every part of who we are if it's true biblical worship. Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me right now. Show me. What journey is he calling you to take? As we wind down and we close here, anyone write anything down? Shake your head at me or some of you all did the homework, praise the Lord. Live in this story all week. We're going to hit it again in some more implications. Whatever your situation, it says in God's word in John 4, this is the final verse, that the Father is actually seeking. It's this play on words, this amazing idea. The Father is actually seeking worshipers. I'll read it in John 4. The hour is coming and is now here, someone say is now here, when the true worshipers 
over and against the false worshipers, I guess. They will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks worshipers like this. What is that spirit and truth business? Those who worship as a response of his divine spirit drawing. Are you tracking with me? Those who respond when they see the star, they go after the star. Right? They respond by the spirit and they respond in the truth. And who is truth? John 14, 6. Jesus is truth. His word, John 17, 17, is truth. So those who are energized by the Spirit, who are drawn by the Spirit, because it's not our idea to worship God, our idea is to worship ourselves, and we all said amen. But when the Spirit pricks our heart, we respond to the Spirit. Whatever he says, we do and we go. It doesn't matter because the Spirit alone leads us to a place of flourishing in life. And then we do it in truth, the person of Jesus. We don't worship on our own terms. We worship through the one who is the very embodiment of truth, Jesus, so that his spirit and truth, we rework, infuse, and inform every part of our existence, every part of us. These are the ones he's seeking. Will you and I be the ones that he finds? If he's seeking for them, will we be those that he finds true worshipers? Stand with me on your feet. Do we have those baskets or buckets? Our prayer team's gonna be here. If you need ministry in any capacity, prayer for the sick or you got sin in your life, you wanna confess to a brother or sister, it's awesome. You gotta need anything you need prayer for, please come after. But these baskets are our response. There are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those little cards I filled out, this is a special offering for you to both put the card, if you know a name or a family in need, but also if you wanna come throw some loose change or checks or whatever. Every dime of this is gonna to go to help those in need and their kiddos or their grandkids in our church family specifically. And so just right now, ask the Lord, Lord, how am I to respond today? How can we worship you today? We honor you and we treasure you, Jesus, above all things. I love you. God bless you. Have an amazing, amazing week. If you need any questions, come on up for prayer. We're here for you. Love you, man.